Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. You, the make, it sound, you make it sound romantic. Yes, There's I know. It's so lovely. Secret bunker thing nestled. By the way, nestled. The word nestle. Yeah. And and here we are in the secret bunker nestled. Nestled. Yeah. As I was saying, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on our radio live. Nestled. Come. nestled. N-E-S-T-L-E-S. Nestle's makes the very best. Chocolate. We win Thank the you. Prize. Danny O'Dell. Ovaltine. That's right. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that's Howard Lapidus, the man interrupting. And uh, Mark C.G. Porter over there, our fact checker. He's been checking all the facts. We have uh, Deborah or Deborah, depending on her pronunciation. She's Canadian. Huh? Figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll ask her. How do we pronounce your name, Deborah? <laughs> Debbie's good. Debbie's good. Debbie's good. We uh, like that. You're getting, you're getting, yeah. You can add you're, that as Levison. Yes. Wow, Debbie. Debbie. Now, now you, you're, you're officially a true car. Tribe hottie. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we, we have our true tribe hottie calendar coming out soon. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll be on we'll it. You'll be on it. You'll, yeah. We'll pick a month, any month. To go ahead and pick. We have a lovely photo of Robin Sachs, former U.S. prosecutor. I know Robin very well. Sprawled across a desk in the courtroom. <laughs> She's a very good friend of mine. And I saw that picture and I was embarrassed for her. <laughs> you were embarrassed for yeah, her. I was. But she I, provided I, that I, for our. I say we. We publish it. Crime Hottie Calendar. Yeah. Wow, what a book. What a story. The Crate just came out, uh, getting a lot of great publicity and uh, a lot of great comments. Proud to have you on the show. Thank you. For 25 points, uh, Debbie, who ran for President of the United States and who was a Holocaust denier? <laughs> I'm sorry, one more time? Who ran for President of the United States? He didn't win, but he ran as President for President of the United States in your lifetime, and he was a Holocaust denier, or is a Holocaust denier. Cause denier? Denier, yeah, he's still alive. Oh, a denier. Denier, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, a nut job. Yeah, Pat Buchanan. Yeah, nut job. Nut job. Ran for President. Yeah. Only in America. Are you, uh, <laughs> are you somewhere uh, in the Great North right now? Uh, no, I'm actually in the great northeast of the states right now. I'm in Connecticut. Oh, okay. oh home of the north. Connecticut School of Broadcasting. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, but I will be heading over the border next weekend. Oh. And you're, you're in the home of Flying Floyd Wright, a fine, fine radio man <laughs> who engulfs <laughs> the, the, the state of Connecticut. Ta-da. <laughs> uh, and you're going back to uh, the great white north? Yeah, I usually go up for a visit in August. Uh-huh, yeah. So heading up there next weekend. Ah, uh, so an exciting to, story. Are you going to cottage country or are you going to Toronto? Um, both, actually. Starting in Toronto and uh, visiting some friends and family, of course, there. And then heading up to the region where the book takes place, where that's, it largely uh, takes that's place. That's kind of where I was going. So you're going to kind of sort of backtrack the book again. Yeah. Because it's your yeah. own backyard. So to speak. That's right. About two hours north of Toronto. Yep. I've been there. My uh, my cousin Max used to run a soda pop factory there. Oh, you do <laughs> really? Well, you do yeah, well. delivered soda pop door to door. 
Really? Yeah, I went with uh, went with them one time, and I, I was delivering soda pop when I was there in Toronto. And the lady said, "Wait for me in the vestibule." So I followed her throughout the house, and she became furious. I said, "I don't know what a vestibule is." <laughs> yeah, you sit over there on the Davenport. <laughs> on the Chesterfield. Yeah, yeah, very good on the Chesterfield. Yeah, I'm wearing a Chesterfield. Meanwhile, back at True Crime Uncensored, live on the radio. Uh, wow. Uh, I'm just going to have you tell us the story because this is just too much. I think I think that's the way to go. Yes, that's I, the way I to go. I tried to in, 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 encapsulate it. And I or in crate it. Right. Yeah. Sure, so, I so guess it's uh, one of those you never think it'll happen to you stories, right? Yes, yes. So let's unpack the crate, Debbie. <laughs> so um, let's start back in 2010 when I got a phone call that was probably the most surreal conversation I'd ever had. Um, I was actually down in Florida with my family. My son was playing baseball mm -hmm. in a big tournament, and um, we had just arrived in the hotel, and my brother called my cell phone, and right away I knew there was something up. You know, his words were normal, but the sound of his voice was way off. And uh, at some point he said, why don't you sit down? Um, which, of course, as we all know, means something big. Horrible, yeah. And, uh, and at that point he said, there's been a murder up at the cottage. So that cottage, that is um, a little lakeside chalet that my parents had built back in the 1970s. And cottage life and cottage country is really part of Canadian culture, part of Toronto culture especially. It's sort of likened to uh, when New Yorkers go to the Hamptons in the summertime, you know, the they make this mass, yeah, mass exodus out of the city and then the city's a ghost town on the weekend. So That's it's right. like that from Toronto too. Toronto goes to um, cottage country and they go to Bay Beach, Ontario. Yeah, well, so cottage country is actually called the Hamptons of the North. A lot of people call it that. It's kind of like Yakima is the Palm Springs of Eastern Washington. It's, it's, it's loaded with people with dough. Let's just keep going. Well, I mean, there's definitely a range, but yes, there is what um, back in the day in the 70s it used to be Millionaire's Row, and since then it's, it's grown into Billionaire's Row, and it's a lot of celebrities from Hollywood, a lot of hockey players and um, you know some very well-known affluent folks have cottages that are can, not can so you, much cottages can you, can but you toss, can you toss some names out yeah drop a few names we want to hear them thud on the floor <laughs> um, let's see Cindy Crawford comes to mind right. oh so great spotted with her gorgeous family zipping yep. around in a motorboat um, so yeah, there there are a bunch, and um, and you can take tours of the, the big lakes where these beautiful cottages sort of nestle. I like your word nestle um, along the water, and it's it's just breathtaking. Our cottage was much much more modest, much smaller. My parents built it by hand, largely um, with their their sweat and their toil. And so for us, it was a very private little sanctuary that they had built really as a legacy for their children and for their grandchildren. Um, my parents, you should know, survived the Holocaust. And when they came to Canada as refugees, they had a little house in the city, but what they hoped was that they could build something in Muskoka, this beautiful region that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm 
this beautiful region, they would build something that was uniquely theirs, that no one could take away from them, that they would have in the family for generations. Mm-hmm. And okay. so it was for our family. It was really a Well, plus, to- having survived the Holocaust, to have something that serene, that lovely, that they had as theirs... Uh, excellent counterpoint to the horrible things that I've experienced. Tucked away and nestled somewhere up in Muskoka, just in case. Yeah. But uh, let me ask you this: where, where were they from before they hit the camps? Hungary. Both okay. were from Hungary. My mother right. was from Budapest, and my father was from a little village a couple of hours away from Budapest called Balasad Yarmat. And um, and both were pretty young when the Nazis invaded. So, um, so, but you're right. The, you know, the counterpoint is is pretty spectacular because here they built themselves this little hideaway uh, on a beautiful, glittering lake in the middle of this very secluded, very innocent, green wooded uh, lot, and. Um, and it was something that nobody could take away from them, really. Uh, well, uh, everything pull, else had been taken away from them. I want to pull you out kind of, I want to take a quick left turn, a little off subject, Debbie, for a sec. Sure. Do you think that Hitler died in Argentina or in the bunker in Germany? Oh, I, I don't even want to guess. I, I don't know enough okay. about that. I say Argentina. Do yourself a favor and... and, and follow that course, because knowing who you are and kind of what you do, I think you'll find it quite interesting. I recently took the trip, and I think um, it was really something to follow a a documentary and read a a couple of books. Easily found. Take the trip. Back to your parents. They nestled in Muskoka, which is uh, uh, an hour or two uh, north of Toronto. Uh, Got them out of town. It was theirs. They built it by hand. And, And handing it off to the new generation, which would be you and your brother. That's right. And uh, then what happened? Uh, Mark so, C.G. Boyer uh, has a question for you, but he needs to get on the microphone this time. Right here. Um, did your uh, parents uh, continue to live a Jewish life, or did they hide their... Hey, I don't know if you can hear him, but he asked, he's yeah. asking if your parents continued their Jewish life, or did they hide their, their Jewishness? Um, I wouldn't say they hid anything, but they definitely did try to assimilate my mother more than my father. Um, They weren't particularly religious when they were in Canada. My father had grown up a little bit more religious than my mother did. Um, But they really did try to assimilate. By then, by the time they arrived, they had already changed their name to uh, a less Jewish-sounding Name. We, my father was originally born Weiss, which was very identifiable as, as being Jewish, and they changed it to Vadis, which actually means hunter in Hungarian. So, um, but uh, you know, they didn't they didn't hide anything. No, my, uh, except except their name. My father changed our family. Uh, I can't well, hear what you're saying. We can't hear what you're saying, Mark. And when we do your book, we'll get that information. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Debbie. So, 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 so years go by, and um, you know, I have kids. My brother has kids. We have dogs, and so now we are two families with shared parents living in this tiny cottage. 
And um, fast forward to 2010, what, my what? brother calls me in Florida and says there's been a murder. He had apparently been cleaning out around the cottage and underneath the cottage where we have this sort of dark, dank crawl space, very spidery, shadowy, full of mosquitoes. So nobody likes to go down there too much. But um, my brother had been cleaning out some materials from a recent renovation, and he came upon this crate. And clearly, someone had taken great pains to try to hide the crate from view, but nonetheless, he found it, and um, they opened it. Uh, my brother had some help. They, they opened it. And, and Geraldo and Rivera was inside? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, not okay. quite. Um, it took some doing because there were lots and lots of nails fastening this thing shut, and they all had to be pried apart because, uh, you know, I'm sure whoever put it there had no intention of having it opened. But um, once they did open it, I mean, clearly the contents were horrific. None of us were prepared for what the crate contained. They called 911, which then triggered the media, of course, and uh, it was apparent that there had been a murder, and the media descended on the property, cordoned it all off with the yellow caution tape. There were, you know, it became a huge police investigation. The headlines were, were it, you know, the whole thing was very invasive. Uh, we all felt besides being terrified that there had been a murder, um, you know, it was a huge violation of what we thought of as our sanctuary, the sanctuary where there would be no violence, where there would be no more evil. That might my, be my first question here is, being as your folks built this thing by hand, how did this thing get under there? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, one that the police have answered because we now have a murderer in jail, at least until 2030, hopefully longer than that, but um, somebody did put it there. When your folks weren't looking. Sorry? When your so, folks weren't looking. So, this, uh, so the murderer, uh, first of all, I'm fascinated. How do they catch him? And then I want to ask a couple follow-up questions from there. Go ahead. So how did they catch him? Yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you, right in the days following the discovery of the crate, uh, the whole family was understandably flipped upside down. We didn't yeah. know what was happening. Right. Uh, of course. You know, me and my family, we were in Florida. Yeah. So my husband and I were completely freaked out by this news. And we had sure. three pretty young children that we wanted to protect. We wanted to preserve their innocence at all costs, especially the youngest one who was just eight years old at the time. Um, the older two, we were really concerned that they'd find out about the whole thing on social media, so we felt we had to tell them. Um, and then my brother had two young kids also. One of them was at camp just a couple of miles away from the cottage. Um, and uh, and so then my brother became the primary murder suspect. Oh, geez. So that was an interesting scenario. Who was the, uh, um, what, what, what police department uh, was governing up in Muskoka? So there are three major towns in Muskoka, Bracebridge, Gravenhurst, and Huntsville. 
and our cottage is in Bracebridge, on the outskirts of Bracebridge, and so it was the Bracebridge Police Department that began the investigation, and it's actually a branch of the Ontario Provincial Police. So in the book, I refer to them as the OPP. So it's, uh, so it's the OPP, that, that's what we've got there. Okay. Right. So Make, it was the OPP sense. who launched an investigation, they came down to Toronto to uh, interrogate my brother, um, and then while they were interrogating my brother in a police station, they also sent some officers to the house. So it was, um, it was like a real, it was like a real Law and Order episode. Wow. So then what happened? They all had nervous breakdowns. Uh, <laughs> pretty close, pretty close. So, um, you know, those first few days were really very much about us and how we reacted to the discovery of this sure. crate. You know, sure. my feelings of horror and my brother was furious and, uh, and obviously my parents were traumatized that this had, this had happened on their property, on their watch. And, um, you know, again, the, the kids were, were freaked out. My husband was, you know, all of us were, were just traumatized. Did someone say to your brother, how could you do such a horrible thing? <laughs> so if you knew my brother, you would, um, you'd laugh at the thought because he's a doctor. He's extremely safety conscious. You know, he, he used to hold these safety drills with the kids. And, uh, what what, uh, what kind of doctor is he? He's an allergist immunologist. Okay. He's a very smart guy. He got the brains in the family. He's a PhD, MD, with a with a lab. He runs his department at the University of Toronto. So, so with all of yeah, that, prime suspect for prime sure. Suspect <laughs> for sure yeah. so, so smart enough to get away with it, but yeah. um, <laughs> but not dumb enough to so, do it. So they grabbed him. They they, they took him in. Well, they interrogated him. They didn't arrest him, but they interrogated him. But then, um, but then they, you know, over the, the next while, they took the body and they autopsied it and identified it. And, um, and then, it, it, you know, it took some time for my thinking to change. I'm, I'm sure all of us sort of morphed in our thinking. But when we found out who the victim was, um, I, I guess at some point I realized that it wasn't so much about our horror and our sense of violation, but here there was a real victim with a family who was probably grieving and devastated and way beyond anything that our talk, family... Talk to us about the victim's family. Talk to us about them. Well, I didn't know the victim. Okay. Um, and it was only much later that I was able to get in touch with her family and find out about her and her life. Um, but it was, you know, it was a few days, maybe even weeks after the discovery of the crate that I, I really realized that here was a victim who no longer had a voice. You know, you hear about the Me Too movement and all these other global kinds of platforms where people who have suffered abuse, um, who have been victimized in other ways, they can come forward and they can tell their story. And, you know, the media pays attention and the courts are paying attention. But what about the people who no longer have a voice? So here I am, a writer. I've always been a writer. I guess I realized that I could tell her story. I could be her voice. 
And at the same time, I realized my parents had stories that needed telling also. You know, they had the stories of the Holocaust that needed to be told. So, so how did you morph yourself into this project? Um, I started, again, it was just this sort of realization that I had an opportunity to to um, to tell the story of the victim and of my parents and of my family. And uh, I can't say I was hoping that any good would come out of it, but at least I'd be able to shine a light on what had happened. What, uh, so what, what, excuse me, uh, what gets to me, and I keep coming back to this in, in my mind, is not so much the, the details of, of this poor woman who was murdered and the person who murdered her, but I keep thinking about your folks and what they endured in the Holocaust. It's something that, I mean, I've talked to a lot of Holocaust survivors and uh, the, the wide variety of, of their emotional responses to what they went through, uh, the, everything from resentments to forgiveness to everything else. To have lived through that, something that's so horrifying I can't even begin to comprehend how someone could endure it, and to get that far away from it, to have this pristine, wonderful sanctuary almost, and have that, uh, the Holocaust shows a behind them, and then have this very visceral reminder of how horrible people can be. Well, it, it, in, in, and to shorten it up, it just wasn't a good thing. No. And uh, <laughs> so take us to take us on the journey of finding out who is who it was. Um. Well, we followed along the police investigation. They were pretty, um, they were pretty tight-lipped at the beginning because, um, you know, whatever clues they had or whatever, whatever ideas they had about the perpetrator, they weren't saying so in the media. Um, but they, they did have free access to our cottage to investigate. My brother gave them keys. And I guess, you know, it was surprising in a way because uh, my mother and I both assumed that they would only investigate outside where the crate was found, but they actually went inside, which was another huge sense, sense of violation, yeah. you know, to have strangers. And, and just, again, so surreal because, uh, you know, I watch this kind of stuff on TV, but I would never, never think that our our normal little family could be caught up in something like this. But, so, but, but, but there but was a police was, investigation that started in July of 2010, and um, and we had been told that it could take, you know, six months, a year for for an investigation like this to resolve. And, uh, and it actually wasn't until 2013 that there was a trial and a conviction. And my brother testified. Um, I did not go up there to testify. I, I mean, I couldn't add anything to to the investigation myself because I had been living here in Connecticut. But I didn't go up there to watch the trial. A lot of it was closed to the public anyway. And I followed along, and my brother, of course, gave me a lot of reports every night about what had been said and what had been so, presented. So, Debbie, talk about your brother. He, he was a suspect, and then he went in for questioning, and he actually testified. Um, right. What did he have to say? That Did he have anything to say that helped him find the actual killer? Um... 
I'm not sure that there was anything he said that that pointed them in the direction of the murderer. But I think it, they had their own suspicions pretty close to to the uh, the findings of the autopsy report, and that um, you know the people most closely linked to the victim were the were the primary suspects at that point. But he, you know, he had a lot to say about the discovery of the crate um, and the events leading up to it. Of course, they tried to um, discredit him and say that he was mixing up dates and mixing up certain findings. And actually, it was funny because my brother does a lot of expert testimony, a lot of expert medical testimony. Um, and he is really very articulate on the stand, and it's really tough to ruffle him up because he's had a lot of experience. And um, and they just couldn't get to him. You yeah, know, the, well, no, no, the defense attorney tried this way and that to confuse him, to get him to uh, stumble. He did nothing. He did nothing. So but he was he was pretty cool under pressure. That's good. So really. let's let's get to. Let's get to who they, who they found. How did they, how did they develop suspicions outside? So of again, I mean, they, they looked at the people most, most closely linked to the victim in her life. And um, without naming names, because I don't want to spoil the entire mystery in the book. Um, <laughs> we won't let they, you do that. You know, De Debbie, don't worry about it. We're going to sell your book. <laughs> Not to worry. It's <laughs> <laughs> You know, but for readers, that's kind of absolutely don't worry, not to worry, even if we finding out. But you know, I so I think it became pretty clear at the beginning that it was that it was a case of domestic violence. Okay. And, yeah, I'd say domestic uh, violence when you wind up in a crate. That's pretty indicative of uh, problems well, in the relationship. There's no question the guy was pissed off. Yeah. Right. Right. But they had the guy under surveillance for a long time, and he was he was pretty clever in, in um, not giving himself away. You know, what, his, uh, his phone lines were tapped, and he was he was pretty adept at not giving away too much on the phone. And uh, and as it turned out, there was no physical evidence to link him to the crime. There were no witnesses. There was no uh, there was no DNA evidence, and and yet the jury did convict. In the end. Okay, how did, how did they do it with nothing available? Um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, the pieces just fit. It was just a, a giant puzzle. Um, there was a lot of evidence after the fact to say that, uh, that the culprit was the right one. Um, uh, and there were just, you know, one thing I will say is you can't get away with murder. You can't. The police are brilliant. They have these incredible, um, ingenious ideas of how to solve things, and, uh, and you just can't get away with it. So, as, as Yeah, I've got the theory that you can't get away with murder in this world or the uh, next. I, I did, actually, <laughs> Debbie, because I, I have the Canadian government sending me a check every month, and I think I'm getting away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> as you can tell, I, I spent some time there, and um, the lovely social insurance policy uh, kicked in. <laughs> Bless you. Yes. And I, I think. Are you getting it in Canadian dollars? No, I get it in U.S. dollars right into my Bank of America account. It's very, very wow. well oiled machine. And I still have my OHIP card. Not that that'll get me very far. Wow. Yeah. One of the first yeah. in '72 to get it. But uh, uh. now it's worthless. But whatever. <laughs>
Anyway. The red and white card. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> you got one too, Debbie? Sure. Once you yeah. gave the number to your doctor up there, the first doctor, it followed you wherever you went. You never had to pull it out again. We go to the drugstore or if you had to go there. Hospital, wherever you had to have problems, that old hip card uh, was terrific uh, for the be in the beginning. In the beginning. In, in the beginning. That's a, the only baseball reference in the Bible. In the in big the inning. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so so now you've uh, you know who the guy is. Your brother's done his testimony and did a great job, and he's done. He's not the. He's he's not the not, killer. He's not the killer, but you pretty but much a relief. Have, have the killer. <laughs> so now you you talked about establishing some sort of a relationship with the killer's family, correct? No, the victim's family. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the victim's family. I, 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 that's exactly what I was thinking. I blame it on the ambient. Okay, so... so <laughs> yes, uh, I blame it on the bossa nova. Yeah. I've, I've done that too, Stephen E. Um, so you got close to the victim's family. Talk about that part. What took you there? Well, um... Just about as soon as I had decided that I wanted to go ahead and write this book, um, I wanted to try to reach out to the victim's family, uh, you know, names I had learned from the media and, and the names my brother had talked about from the trial. I wanted to reach out to them right away, let them know that I was writing this book, and I really wanted their blessing. I, you know, I really was kind of sensitive to the fact that I was writing about their daughter, their sister, and um, and I wanted I wanted to smooth that path right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I didn't want there to be any surprises on their part. Right. Um, but finding them wasn't so easy. Really. So I, I had the name of the mother and I had the name of the sister. Um, and then I you know I tried to find them in the yellow pages and I tried to find them on Google and I I tried through the Bracebridge court system where they had testified. Um, you know, through the the family advocates that were that knew them and that had interacted with them, I tried to get phone numbers or addresses, and um, and I really couldn't find the two of them. They have a fairly common last name, and um, and I wasn't sure where they lived. They didn't live in Bracebridge. Um, I think the two of them didn't even live in the same town. And I couldn't find them. So I wrote as much of the book as I could just from, you know, from our family perspective and from media reports. Um, and by the time I got it in front of a publisher, it just it wasn't enough. It really was lacking um, the background of the victim and the input of the victim's family to make it, to make it more cohesive and... Um, and then it, I think at some point my kid said to me, well, did you try social media? And I was like, duh. Duh, yeah. <laughs> so I went on Facebook. Okay, and look, look, uh, Debbie, uh, Debbie, one thing to remember really quickly is they invented Google just in time for people like us. <laughs> just as, as the marvels were starting to shift in the, in the uh, upper uh, container. Uh, Mer Burles have gone long ago, but for us, we can use Google. <laughs> well, so I went on Facebook, and I found two women who I thought may, may have been the right ones. And I sent them messages, private messages, and I never heard back. So, um, so that was 
Christmas, I think, of 2014, and I never heard from them. So I, you know, I just kind of did my best to work with what I had, and then an editor said to me, you know, we really need more. You have to dig deeper. And he said that, and I was really at a loss. I didn't know how I was going to do that. And then literally a week after that conversation, literally a week after, I get these two messages that pop up on my Facebook um, notifications, one from the mother, one from the sister, and they both said roughly the same thing, which was, I just got this message from you. I don't know why I didn't see it earlier, but let's talk. So literally, I have chills going down my spine as I'm saying this because it was a year and a half later that they responded to my messages exactly when I needed them to. Oh, so a God lot of them. the theme of the book is fate. You know, how random are these things? How, like, how much is fate involved in all of this? And I can't help, I, I know it sounds silly, but I can't help but think that somehow the victim had some hand in putting us together so that I could learn her story and find out about her life and meet her. Well, I, ha I have yet to meet them in person, but we spent a lot of time on the phone talking about, um, about the past and how things, how things came to be for, for the victim. Uh, speaking of the, the, the past, in the next few weeks when I go up to Canada, and I really, you know, I really, really hope that the book is a gift for my mother, um, in terms of of it being her Holocaust story, but it also really is a gift to uh, to this mother and sister. Now I got to ask you a question about your your folks here. Uh, just from my own experience, my my family wasn't the Holocaust, but my father escaped from. Uh, Russia at the time of the Cossacks and Revolution, and we took him to see Fiddler on the Roof, and we said, is that what it was like, Dad? And he said, exactly, except a hell of a lot worse, and no one was singing. <laughs> he, he would never talk about his experiences, ever. We refused to talk about it. And then one day, we're sitting out at Loon Lake, Washington, and my uh, father-in-law at the time turns to and says, Dave, you never told me how you got out of Russia about your childhood there. And I, I kind of held my breath, right, looking at my dad. My dad kind of pauses for a minute, takes a big deep breath, goes, okay, it was like this. And he started and told the whole horrifying story of his escape from Russia when he was seven years old. Uh, I mean, it was just, I was dumbstruck by what, he had, what he'd gone through, what he... Uh, that he, I could understand why he didn't talk about it, but he, he finally, finally did. So, with, with your folks, had, had they been open about the details of their horrific experiences, or had they held back until this happened? Oh, they, well, it wasn't until this happened, but as a child, they didn't talk about it at all. Um, you know, I, I went through my whole childhood not knowing what had happened, wondering why there was a grand total of five of us in the entire family, you know, my mother, father, brother, me, and my maternal grandmother, and that was it. And, you know, all my other friends and all the neighborhood kids, they had aunts and uncles and cousins and all four grandparents and... Numbers and, on their arm? Uh, no, no. No. No, they were not in Auschwitz. No, ta no, ta uh, no tattoos. Um, but, you know, again, they, they never talked about it. But I always felt this shadow over our family that 
sort of separated us from what I thought were normal families. Our house was very immaculate. My parents took huge, great pains to make sure that everything um, was maintained and preserved. You know, the, the furniture that they bought in the 60s, the white carpet and the white furniture was every bit as pristine 40 years later as the day they bought it. And their appliances were in perfect repair and their clothes were as if nobody had ever worn them. You know, they just really wanted to preserve everything in their in their world because in the past everything had been ripped away from them and most of all they were incredibly overprotective of my brother and me like to the nth degree um they were terribly concerned about us getting sick so even if we just had a little cold or sniffles they'd freak out um, and they they were very um very overcautious with us we always had to be in sight I remember when I was like five minutes late coming home for dinner, I was riding my bike around the block when I was about 10 years old, and my mom sent the police. The police came looking for me. Um, but they were very overprotective, and, and most of all of, of us kids. But I, I really didn't know why. They never talked about their past. They never talked about relatives who would who would perish. There, there's a thing, uh, they, they, uh, mine too, uh, where... My grandfather, we would uh, sit at, uh, at a Passover Seder, and my cousin and I would have enough of it in, in the middle uh, after dinner, you know, say we're going out for a walk. And he would always say, don't run, don't mm -hmm. run. And, I, you know, as I grew up, I kept hearing that, don't run. And I finally was old enough to go, what's with the don't run? And he said, come and sit down. Huh. And I sat down. And he told me about his brother in Yugoslavia who was out for a run, and they picked him off. And he was dead. So he had this great fear of us running, even in the United States of America. If he were wow. alive today, he'd really have that fear. But that's another story. Wow. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it took some prying to get that even little tidbit out of him. And yeah. I can imagine how it was for you with not only your parents, but the others involved. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't until I was 13, there was a miniseries on television that aired called Holocaust, or Shoah in Hebrew, and um, I remember turning the channels, and I just sort of came upon this show, and I started to watch it for a few minutes, and I didn't realize my father had stepped into the room and saw over my shoulder what I was watching, and, and barked at me to turn it off, which was you know, surprising because he, normally he didn't care what I was watching on TV, but it was right around then that I kind of started asking questions and I had to be very, very ginger because I didn't want to upset my parents, you know, walk, uh, living in our house was like walking on eggshells. I had to be very careful with what I said. I didn't want to upset them or make them sad. Um, but my mother began to tell me a little bit of what she had experienced because we were the same age. I was 13 when I asked and she was 13 when it started to happen. So I guess she thought I was old enough at that point. Yeah. So, so, so how did she open up? Um, you have to remember started, the first thing. She started telling me. There was a lot she wouldn't tell me that she thought was just too, too distressing for me to know. But again, trying to overprotect. But 
she told me a bit about what had happened to her when the Nazis came and and how she and her family were brought into a ghetto in Budapest and all the things that they had to endure in the ghetto. Um, so I knew a little bit from that point. I started to do a little bit of looking into it in books in the library, but, you know, there was this huge sense of guilt. I always kind of felt if my parents didn't want me to know something, I shouldn't do anything behind their back to find out. So I, I felt pretty guilty about even looking at library books about it. But it wasn't until I was really uh, an adult, a married woman with children in 1997, that my parents decided to participate in the, the Steven Spielberg Holocaust Foundation. Um, he had started to create an archive of videotaped testimonies and everyone in the Hungarian Jewish community in Toronto was participating, and so my parents also agreed to have their testimony videotaped. And it wasn't until I watched my father's videotape that I really found out what had happened to him. Mm. Hi, this is uh, Mark over in the corner here. <laughs> I have, uh, unfortunately, a large number of family and friends that were touched by the Holocaust. Get right on the microphone, please. You know, uh, parents that survived, children that survived. But the, the one, one that hits me the most at this moment is my best friend from junior high school. His father was six when he was taken from Poland into the camps where his parents were gassed. And he survived for six years before he was liberated. And when he was 17-ish, he went on a boat to Ellis Island. Uh -huh. And as best as he could, with whatever little English he knew, he asked for the best tattoo shop in New York and had the J put on his arm. He had managed to, have a, to get a tattoo without being identified as Jewish. Huh. Weird. Wow. Everyone responds to those traumas differently and adapts to them somehow. So let's get back to how this all reflected on the story you're telling in this tremendous book. Well, um, I think it was something that my husband said that, that really triggered the idea of telling my parents' stories. Um, you know, back in those initial days after after the discovery of the crate, which was um, July, so right around this time of the summer, we were talking about how we could go back for our annual August pilgrimage up to the cottage, which we did every single year without fail. Um, and my, my husband said to my parents, you're really thinking about going back there after someone was murdered? And my mother turned and looked at him and said, of course we'll go back. We'll get through this. We've been through nightmares before. And those words and that determination to, um, you know, to, to make the best of things, not only to survive, but to, um, you know, to make the best of the situation, that right there, that statement of hers that they'd been through nightmares before really triggered the idea that I'd be able to tell their stories um, along with what had happened with the murder. 
Uh, Bro, can we quickly uh, review uh, the name of the book? Uh, yes, it has a very uh, strange title. Very difficult to remember. <laughs> it's called The Crate. The Crate. It's got a picture of a crate on the front of the uh, front of the book from Wild Blue Press, I believe. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Can I give a shout-out? Yeah, give, give a, a shout-out to, to Wild Blue Press. Yeah, Love Steve that. Jackson and uh, Michael Cordova. He's always there. Exactly, and Michael's there. Yeah. yeah. A great team. Yep. They published um, many of my ramblings as well. Much to their yeah. chagrin. Much to their and shock, chagrin, and mortification. Much, much to their chagrin. <laughs> I will, I will, I'll play with their authors, too. And, <laughs> And decide whether I read the book, and, and I always I do this every week, and, and I don't read the book beforehand, but I, I sure know who you were, and um, I, I every, after talking to you, I am definitely going to pick up a copy of this book, definitely. Thank you. And I look forward to it. So at least you got one sale coming out of the show today. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a plus. I may go buy one myself. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's gonna pay. Lord knows I have. I try to find my books used. <laughs> so can I just tell you that the full title of the book is "The Crate: A Story of War, a Murder, and Justice." There you go. So sometimes when you're looking online on sites like Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Goodreads, you have to plug in the whole title for it to come up. Well, what I did is, is I went on Amazon and I, because uh, I wanted to put a picture of your book cover, uh, you know, up on the website, and I typed in the crate and forgot to select books, and what I got was a picture of a poodle in a uh, crate. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> you have a cute stuff. Well, how did their own. sales compare to mine? What's that? What was the question? How did their sales compare to mine? Uh, the poodle was doing great. You <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just like kids and dogs are hard to compete with, <laughs> or Burgess Meredith for that matter. So you are going up there next next week. I am. Good. I am. Good. I have a bunch of events set up, trying to um, trying to talk about the book and and definitely meet with um, with these new friends of mine. And uh, by now, they've had a chance to read the book, and so I'm really anxious to hear what they think. Oh, well, they're not going to be honest with you anyway. Why <laughs> not? <laughs> well, because if they really, really think it's fabulous, they don't want to be too effusive because you'll think they're buttering you up. And if they didn't like it, they're not going to say so anyway. None of my family or friends read my books. I used to find that depressing that my uh, former wife uh, never read any of my books. Uh, that's your first clue, by the way. But the, the uh, <laughs> first clue that there was something wrong. <laughs> my first wife never listened to my radio show. How about that? Oh, so that I, so that's why they're uh, living in the first wife uh, club. And first wife's the, club. Yeah, and then that's that for that. And new wife and kids, and everybody's happy. So. Um, <laughs> It's interesting, my daughter, when she was, I think, in the seventh grade, was assigned a, uh, a project, or I should I say project. Um, she was assigned a project for uh, her class to interview somebody interesting. That was, that was it. And she went across the street to Mr. Klein, who she knows survived the Holocaust, who never spoke of it. And she went and looked at him and, with her eyes and said, it's for my school. Can I talk to you for a bit? And he said, yes. And that seventh grader sat there and interviewed him for over an hour. And some of the most fascinating stuff that I'd ever heard. That's not easy for a seventh grader. No. 
No. Uh, and she, you know, went on to be very successful in her own right. But but the the uh, listening to that was eye opening. Listening to um, Ivan the Terrible, who you may or may not know of. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I had the pleasure of representing the lawyer that was defending him, and that took me that project to took me to the gates of hell and back. And so I can only imagine where you walked to get this story and what you brought back and put down into uh, pen and paper. So that's, that's why I'm looking forward to it because yeah. these are stories that just have to be told and so many of them will never be told because they're gone. And, uh, and that's a shame. And then, you know, the Holocaust deniers show up and Beyond. Right, and they have a huge voice on the internet. Yeah, and it's yeah. a—it's—it's uh, it's so insane. But I, I, I'm not here to go against that right now. But yeah. uh, we're here. But the other thing is that there's really so little education. You know, they—they they had this survey a few months back where they found something like 50% of millennials had never been taught about the Holocaust. And 30% didn't know what Auschwitz was. Oh. It's unfortunate that, you know, I believe every word you're saying. And, and have you been to any of the uh, the memorials, the Auschwitz Memorial in Washington or in Los Angeles? In Yeah, in Washington I, I was. I was also in Yad Vashem in uh, Israel. Oh, boy. Which was pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Hungary. I've been to Hungary a few times. Mm. So you've, you've walked the walk, and it's just a terrible, it's a terrible walk. I haven't walk. been to Poland, right. so I will, I will try to do that. Well, the Holocaust Museum here is utterly fascinating. The Museum of Tolerance, yeah. is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's really great. I mean, you feel it yes. from the time you park your car. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's a hard thing to look at. Well, we keep saying never again, never again, never again, but it uh, keeps coming up all too often, all too often, all too often. Right. Right. That's why it's so timely now in this society with everything that's happening now. We really need to uh, be talking about this stuff. Uh, but there's good people on all sides, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I write about that, too, in my book. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I, yeah, I do try to make a point of talking about that. Too. So at the end of the day, this guy killed his his wife. It was spousal abuse, right? Yeah. Could he have just got a divorce? <laughs> they weren't actually married. Oh, could he have just got a legal separation? <laughs> I mean, well, I don't understand these people right killing their spousal or spouse, as Matt would say, spousal equivalents. Uh, they could just leave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean, sometimes the woman can't leave, or if the woman's the abuser, the guy can't leave. But in this case, he could have just said, I'm, I'm breaking up with you. Earl, there, there are circumstances where, in the heat of a moment, uh, something unintended occurs, and now you're stuck with a dead body. Is that what happened here, do you think? Yeah. Um, yes. I think there was, it was definitely a, a heat of the moment situation, but then... But then it quickly deteriorated. Deteriorated from there. So, um, you know, that that quick, passionate response, I think, 
can be understood by by everyone. You know, I'm sure everyone is capable to some degree of that kind of very unthinking, just physical response. But it was everything that happened after the actual murder that really made me think evil still exists in the world. What, uh, what happened after the murder? That he did, cut did, her up and put her in a crate. That's rude. But he didn't call the cops, did he? No. Oh, no. No, I think he thought he was home free. I think he thought he had gotten away with it quite quite well. Why did he pick that house? Um, well, that circles back to my question about fate. Uh, you know, I can't help but think, why would a murderer choose to hide a body of his victim in a place where a writer could tell the story to the world. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. But I think the more the more logical answer is that it was secluded and it was probably the last place anyone would look because we were just a regular family going about our business. So above suspicion kind of thing, I guess. And he had, he had opportunity. And he uh, had opportunity. How long yeah. was it there? It was there for, um, the crate was there for only a couple of weeks. Really? Am my timeline correct? Wow. Yeah. But it were three and a half years after the murder. Yes. So we had the crate somewhere else, like in the trunk of his car or something. Uh, the body parts, yes. The crate didn't exist until he cobbled it together later. Oh, yeah. He had a storage unit that was borrowed from Oh boy, this whole storage unit thing in dead bodies is all too common. <laughs> it is. Yeah, on TV, not in our real lives. Well, there's, I got one for you. There's this guy who murdered his wife and kids and put the bodies in a storage locker, uh, left uh, the state, went to uh, Idaho, uh, gets a new wife. And uh, she, every month she's paying this storage locker bill. Yeah. And he'll never tell her what's in this, so finally she gets fed up and stops paying it. They auction the thing off, and of course, boom, there's the bodies inside. They come and they get him. And uh, she was asked, if you'd known what was in that storage locker, what would you have done? She said, I would have kept paying the bill. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. He said, well, aren't you afraid that, uh, I mean, if his wife and kids are murdered and stuffed in a storage locker. You're his wife now. Doesn't make you concerned. Oh, no. He was drinking then. He's not oh. drinking now. I'm safe. Yeah, right. Tell me <laughs> tell me more about the new logic. <sighs> the book is called The Crate uh, with a subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> a Story of War, a Murder, and Justice. By Deborah Vadas Levison. See, you had to go and marry a Jewish guy and, and blow your cover. <laughs> now everyone knows. She's, uh, she did that in a very, very smart way. She did in a very smart way. And, and, and an enjoyable, quick one-hour visit. To Debbie, thank you very, very much for... Uh, and we managed to keep the secret. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look forward to the book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so you much for having me. You did a great job, very loquacious, and a crime hottie to boot. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you very much. The book is called The Crate. Get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, direct from Wild Blue Press. There you go. Hey. Thanks, Debbie. Hey, Burl. Yes, I've heard of me. What would be next? Magic Bad Allen and the Demons of Decade is live in the Lightning Lounge. And I'll already live.com. <laughs>